We live in a world that is filled with people who are filled, who are engrossed with achievements. And you know this. Uh, it could be any kinds of achievements, uh, whether it be sports, whether it be education, academics, whether it be financial, some entertainments, things that drives people in their life to be able to wake up in the morning, uh, to be able to, um, um, to live life the way they want. And it is fascinating to see how all those things um, help people to just be driven in a sense of uh, what they want to accomplish. So achievements, um, and we look, whether it be sports or academic or financial, whatever that it is, um, we realize that these in the world where we live becomes the grounds for people to glory in. How many times you watch on the TV, whether sports, see how people, you know, speak about themselves, how good they are at that. Or whether it be the people in academic world, how their knowledge becomes the grounds of their glory. Well, today we're going to be looking at uh, the, the title of the message is The Boast of the Righteous. What does boast mean? How does it look like? The word boast in a secular world from Christian perspective it has this, you know, it carries this negative notion. As you know, um, when you talk about boasting, what comes into mind, at least mine, is it's pride. Um, and it conveys that attitude of being pride, the very attitude that God hates. God hates pride, gets, God hates boasting. How then can we, um, how can this word then be associated with the righteous? How can the godly be associated with the word boast? How can they boast? And our text this morning shows how boast can be used from biblical perspective in a negative way or in a, with a negative sense or positive sense. And it all depends on the ground by which one's boast. The grounds in which one's boast. Well, before we even get into our text this morning, which will be verse 23 and 24, I want us to look at the flow of the chapter itself. How does this chapter, how does this text that we're going to look at it, uh, fit into the whole chapter of chapter 9 specifically. Well, if you look at the whole book, Jeremiah is well known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because of his persistent message of God's judgment. Beginning from chapter 1, when God calls him and tells him what his message, his ministry is going to look like, what the message is going to be uh, uh, delivering to the people of Judah, it is been it's filled with judgment. And if you read the whole book of Jeremiah, you see how the 
how he paints these or pictures or describes this punishment, this judgment, how it's going to look like. And if you look at it, it's very graphic. And as you read it, you see how severe this punishment or judgment is going to be. And he prophesied a century from the reign of King Josiah all the way until sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem or destruction of the nation of Judah altogether. And uh, he's the prophet of God and God shows him what's going to happen in a detailed way. That's why he's able to go to the people of Judah, the nation of Judah, and be able to explain to them, to share with them what God shows them. And what God shows them is that he's coming to destroy the nation of Judah. And how he's going to do it. So it's not just the idea of Judah will be destroyed, but he also shares with them information on how he's going to do it. If at all that persuade them to listen, to pay their ear, to give their ear to what he has to say. And so he is the man who is able to see what is going to happen. And he see how serious that judgment is going to look at. And he begins to share with these people, to tell them, to warn them of this serious judgment. And then the actual judgment happens and he witnesses it. He sees it. He's there. And I think uh, if you want to hear more of how his feelings were about the whole thing, you have to read Lamentation. Uh, My wife and I uh, way back, we decided to read the book of Lamentation. But before we started reading, I realized that, wait a minute, we can't really appreciate the book of Lamentation unless we read the book of Jeremiah. So we took a road of reading the whole chapter 52 of Jeremiah. I think there are those many chapters. But, you know, because Jeremiah just paints you, tells you why Jeremiah laments. And so you have this prophet who can see what's going to happen and he tells these people, but he's speaking to deaf ears. And then the actual judgment happens. And now you have to be in his shoes here. He has tried with his with everything he has, the energy, effort, he even spent his body because you know he had to be even uh, persecuted just to help them see the seriousness of God's judgment. And that these people, if only they can turn, if only they can hear and listen to what he was saying, this would perhaps not happen. But he sees all. And now you can feel why he is dimmed as a sad prophet, where you see everything just unfolding before us, especially you, you tell them, this is how God is going to uh, destroy this nation. He's going to level everything to the ground. 
He's going to destroy everything and he's going to take you from this place where he gave you as a gift, as a promised land, well, a place of milk and hand. He's going to take you, pull you out and drive you to a place where you don't know, even where your fathers didn't even know, to the people you are not familiar with. But they did not listen. And so he sees everything. That's why he laments. And as he laments, you can imagine in his mind was like, this could have been prevented. All you had to do is listen to what I was telling you and heed it. Turn away from the wicked way. But they did not. So that's just the book of Jeremiah. That's what's happening. So he labors to explain himself. He labors to warn these people to warn them of what is about to come. Hopefully, they can listen to him, but they didn't. So, having that in mind, let's look at the flow of the text, the the chapter of chapter 9, and we see that in verse 1 through 9, so Jeremiah pants or gives us a condition shows with us the condition of the nation at that particular time. He shares with us the disheartening condition of the nation of Judah. And these are not new. He has already spoken of these conditions prior to that in other chapters, and he will be speaking the same thing all the way to the end of the book. What is the condition of this nation? Well, this nation, it says there uh, in verse 9, I mean chapter 9, verse 1, uh, verse, uh, let's go on to verse 3. It says, talking about these people. Now let's start from verse 2. It says, Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adorers. A company of trickless men. Verse 3. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. And here's the thing. For they proceed from evil to evil. There is escalation of wickedness. Progression of their wickedness is going. That's the condition they are. And why do they keep on sinning? Why do they keep on practicing evil? Why do they keep on practicing wickedness? Well, because they do not know me at the end of verse 3. And why do they not know me? Is it because God has he hired his word from them? Has God not shown them who he is? Well, he has the prophet. Jeremiah is trying to do that. But why have they not known him? Look at verse 6. It says, because they refuse to know me. So it's not because the uh, knowledge is not there. It's not because the word has not been given to them. It's just that they've rejected it. Isn't it the same thing that we are experiencing in today's world? Is that estranged from this? We're dealing with the same thing even in this world. It's not that people 
have not had an opportunity to hear the truth. No, it's just because they have rejected the truth. They don't want to hear it. And that's what is happening here. These people, the people of God, God chose them to be His. And they should be the ones that they should be embracing His truth, running to Him. But what they do, they refuse. They don't want to know. And uh, in verses 10 through 16, now God comes in with retribution. Well, because ye have refused me. Here are the consequences. So verse 10 through 16, he describes the ruthless impending punishment for Judah that he's prepared for Judah. Um, and verse, uh, I think it's verse, let's look at verse uh, 16. He says, I will scatter them among the nations. Well, let's start from verse 15. Or 15, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with the bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them, until I have annihilated them. But prior to that, you hear of how he's going to do that. They are swords. He's using famine. He's using all kinds of graphic and uh, severe way of uh, unleashing his punishment on them. And in verse 17 through 25, now that God tells us, this is who you are. You have forsaken me. You have refused to know me. And then, this is what follows. This is what the consequences for your sin, for your wickedness. Prepare to mourn. So that's basically your sin, 17 through 25. It's the preparation for the unprecedented mourning. Because the destruction that they're going to experience, it will be unprecedented destruction. They have never seen something like that before. And so in verse 17, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the morning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. So it wasn't like what we do here in the funerals. There in the funerals, they had specific professional mourners. When you have a funeral, you call those people, you hire those people, they come and they mourn for you. That was just the culture. And God says, you have to go call those men. But the other thing he, he does, on top of those professional mourners, verse 20, it says, Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. Because of the magnitude of the death that they're going to experience, 
it's going to require more than professional mourners. Every woman has to participate in this one. So it's a call for mourning. This tells you the severity of the punishment they're going to receive. It's not what they have ever seen before. It's new. And so it is in this context that our text uh, shows up. And uh, I will read for us. Uh, it's the, our text is uh, chapter 9. Verse 23, 24. Let me read for us. That says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. When you read this text, these two texts, the focusing word is the word boast. It has been repeated here four times in these couple of verses. And it presents or gives the idea of praise or glory. And actually, in our original language, the word itself is the word where we have uh, the word hallelujah. And the Bible uses this word bust. He uses this word bust uh, in a negative tone in many places, several places. And these places where we see busting being used negatively, busting is extremely criticized is extremely disapproved for example in chapter in proverbs 27 verses 1 and 2 the writer there condemns those who boast about the future this is do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring and you also see the same word used negatively in in psalms chapter 10 verse 3 where well, the psalmist highlights that the wicked rejects God. And verse 3, it says, For the wicked boast of the desires of his souls, not of God, not God's desire, but his own soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. You see, in, the, in Psalms chapter 97, verse 7, the psalmist exposes the futility of boasting and worthless idols. He says, all worshippers of images are put to shame who makes their bust in worthless idols. Then he calls the man of God, says, worship him, all you, God. But, not only does God, uh, does Bible speaks of this word uh, uh, in a more negative sense, but it also uses this word in a positive sense. And we can see some of those places. One of them is Psalms 34 verse 2, where the fasting is approved. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise 
shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. My soul boasts in the Lord. And uh, Psalm 6 to 4, verse 10, it says, Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright, the godly ones, the righteous ones, in heart exalt, oh, glory, or boast. And I think these two verses that we're going to be looking at helps us more clearly how this word can be used in a more of condemning way or in a way that it is approved. And so this text here presents to us two conflicting grounds for boasting. Two conflicting grounds of boasting. One is criticized and one is approved. The first one that we're going to look at is that God condemns human-centered boasting. Look at me at verse 23. It says there, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man, whoever calls himself as wise, let him not boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man, that whoever thinks he's a mighty, he's strong, let him not boast in his mighty. And let not the one who think he's rich, or the rich man, boast in his riches. Now, the thing is, as you look at this, these are sort of human elements by which God is saying, no man should let these elements, wisdom, riches, strength, be the basis, be the ground of boasting. Let no man be attempted to do so. Because as you can see how it describes these things belong to man, they're attached to human, they are his. So this kind of boasting is human boasting. Why is it human boasting? Look at what the focus is. It focuses on human elements. That's where it focuses on. His wisdom, his strength, his riches. And as we examine it, you will see how watery this kind of boasting is. It is watery. And that it is the very same boasting that Paul calls it the bust of the flesh, not the bust, um, busting, and God. It's the bust of the flesh. Now, it is not wrong to be wise. It is not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to be strong. The problem is when this element becomes the ground of busting. If these are the basis of your glory, that when you wake up, when you move on the door, you feel good about yourself, these are the ones that drives you in your life, that is when it becomes the problem. When you begin to concentrate 
on your own achievement and activities while forsaking God when these elements usurp the place of God in your life, that is the problem. So what you have here is human wisdom, human strength, and human riches. Do not let them be the base of your glory. Human wisdom, wisdom refers to discerning, being able to judge, ability to judge. Like you remember, Solomon was given wisdom. God gave him wisdom, and he was able to um, uh, to, to to judge sentences. Wow, fairly. That's wisdom. And uh, this wisdom that helps you to discern, it's the wisdom that comes from understanding God's word, what God requires of you. Understanding God's truth, that's what allows you to be able to judge what's wrong, what's right. It comes from God's truth. This is the God's wisdom. But human wisdom clashes or contradicts with God's wisdom. It undermines God's truth. It questions the trustworthiness of his word. And actually, Jeremiah, this was the biggest challenge that he had to do. One of the biggest challenges he had to do was exposing these false prophets. Because these false prophets, they spend all their energy, their time, discrediting God's word, God's voice. They tried to question the word of the Lord. And frequently, they tried to undermine his wisdom. Um, there, here are some of the places where Jeremiah helps us see how they did that. First, you look at chapter 7, verse 4. Jeremiah wants the people, first he does, he, he wants the people of Judah. He tells them, he wants them. He says, do not trust these deceptive words, and he that's repeated in chapter in verse chapter nine, um, the same chapters, uh, chapters, uh, what was that? Uh, chapter the same chapter seven, verse, uh, verse eight. Which words is he talking about? Which words is he referring on here? Well, the words he's referring it's the words that contended with God's message of the temple's destruction. God had told. Judah, we, I'm going to destroy everything, and every building will be leveled to the ground. Whatever that is, no matter how strong it is, you can build it with bronze, whether it's built with gold, whether it's built with whatever heavy, strong material, everything will be leveled. And by that, he meant this includes the temple, the most significant building, the center of the nation of Judah was the temple. He said, even that will be leveled to the ground. And the false prophets, they heard that. They came behind and they, they, they started telling people, absolutely no. God will not destroy the temple of the Lord because this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. No man can touch the temple of the Lord. No one will touch the temple of the Lord. God will not destroy the temple of the Lord. So the question's God's voice right there. 
that questions God's message. And Jeremiah assures them. He says, God will destroy even that. By the way, he reminds them, do you remember Shiloh, where I had an ark? The most important object where God's presence resides. His glory was there. What happened there? So this is not going to be the first time that God destroys where he has chosen to make himself present. So it's going to happen. Well, in chapter 8, verse 10, the false prophets disputed with God's message, judge, uh, God's judgment, with their message of fabricated peace. Because when God taught them that, I will punish this nation and I will judge this nation, there will be no peace. They came by and they said, no, 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 no. God would not take peace from us. No, absolutely, there will be peace. And you see also even in verse, uh, uh, I think it's uh, in chapter 5, verse 13, where they started giving deceitful comfort to the people of Judah. And in verse, chapter 5, verse 13, God uh, speaks through Jeremiah, says, They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, he will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us. No shall we see sword of famine. Now all you see there is that these people who are saying God is wrong. God is lying. He's not going to do what he's saying he's going to do. It's impossible. He can't do it. And this is the fight that Jeremiah had to do with because his job was to expose these people with the truth. He had the truth. God had sent him. God had not sent the false prophets. And the words he was sharing with these people, they were hard words to take. But what is so heartbreaking about all this is that the people of Judah chose to love and embrace these deceitful words and rejected God. This is one of those things that made Jeremiah cry, weep. That's why he's the weeping office. Because you see it. Here's the truth. But if people look at you and walk away, choose what's lie. That's like what Paul says in Timothy, that people love to hear what's tickling their ears. And that happens even to us sometimes. There's some things we don't want to hear. Even if it's true, we just dismiss them. By the way. But this is what's happening here. There's some that believe this is true, but it was hard to take. And so they rejected it. They embraced the lie instead of embracing the truth. And in chapter 9, verse 12, God has to ask a question. And in verse 12, he says, Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? That's a rhetorical question. Understand what? Well, there is judgment coming. Everything will be destroyed. And God is bringing 
the most violent and ruthless judgment upon them. Who understand this? Who is so wise to grapple this? Well, the answer is no. No one understands. That's why they continue to proceed in their evil way. If only they understood. If only they accepted the wisdom of God. But no one did that. So it says there, they refused to know the Lord. They didn't know God, and they refused to know God. They refused the word of God. In verse 13 uh, through 16, you see then chapter 9. Well, but here's the problem. These people, very same people, refused God's word, the, Lord, the word of the Lord. They claimed to be wise. They see there in chapter 8 verse, uh, through 9. Jeremiah denounces them their false claim of being wise because they think they are wise in so doing. But the thing is this. How can you say you are wise whilst rejecting God's counsel? They haven't remembered Proverbs 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fool despise wisdom, and instruction. These people are being foolish, but they think they're wise. And uh, Jeremiah even notices that, you know, in verse chapter 5, verse 24, it says, they do not say in their hearts, let us fear those. So there's no fear of God. That's why they refuse his knowledge. They don't want to hear it. But yet they call themselves wise. That is human wisdom that clashes, that contradicts God's wisdom. And this is the wisdom that these people are glorying in. This is the wisdom that they're busting in. Human wisdom refuses to heed the word of God. The word of God, which is, it's that which generates true wisdom. That's why God, or Paul speaks of this, calling us to spend ourselves in the time with the word, the word that brings the wisdom that we need. But the Judah, they basically denounce that. Not only that, this is human wisdom, but we see also that they have human strength. Human strength. We have human strength. Basically, this is the strength that has to do with, uh, the word itself has to do with uh, a hero, a, a warrior, a soldier who works out, who's, who's able to conquer and the idea here with this context is they have like this defensive me- mechanism, military defense mechanism that have given them safety, that they feel like they don't need anybody else because they are fully covered. And they bust in that. So instead of looking for strength from God, they look 
to their fortified cities. And Jeremiah says in chapter 5, verse 17, those fortified cities will be destroyed. He assures them. And then when you look at their human riches, riches basically referring to prosperity and physical resources, being worth life of abundance. And I think Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 27 even points out that these riches that they were busting in, they were even acquired unjustly, deceitfully. And it is in these riches that Jeremiah says in chapter 49 verse 4 that they put their trust. He says, why do you boast of your valleys, O faithfully daughters, faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, who will come against us? So you see, they, they've put their trust in these riches. Wisdom, strength, and riches have driven these people become self-reliant, independent of God. It is human-centered grounds of boasting which prompts them, who, which motivates them, makes them, moves them to forsake God. It is that which has created its own standard of truth that opposes God's absolute truth. And this ground of boasting is not just unreliable, but destructive. Because as you can see, these people, they can't see the danger coming. And what it does also, it does not put lives in a proper perspective. Because as you see, God is telling them, I will destroy this. Wisdom, riches, and it doesn't matter whether you're rich, whether you're wise, whether you're strong, because all that will be gone. So, if you're wise, you realize, okay, if this doesn't matter, then I should be looking for something that matters. But they don't. I will destroy it. So their, their, their perspective is distorted with this force from the, uh, these false prophets. Human wisdom. So, but instead of desperately seeking what matters, they preoccupy themselves with that which is passing. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's going anyways. But that's, those elements are the elements that made... Most of them fight with other, argue, deceive each other, and they spend their time, wasted their time with that. It just doesn't matter. Well, what matters? What matters? If this doesn't matter, something has to matter out there. There's something that matters. What is it? That's what you need to boss in. That's what God says. And that takes us to the second Grounds of boasting, and says, which says that God commands God-centered boasting. What matters is what God approves, not what God criticizes, not what God condemns, but what God approves. And verse twenty-four, it says there, 
But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. The emphasis on this verse is on understanding and knowing. Understanding has the idea of seeing of having your mind opened to gain an insight, to make one wise. It's when you can't see something and now it's clear. It's like when you... Okay, I'm fighting with myself here. Um, It's like when you you have glasses, you know, or you didn't know, you know, you, you, you... you thought you had a good sight, but then you know you're bumping into things and realize I have a problem. Then you, you get your eyes, you you can see clear. It's like you understand, you see. That's the idea here. And that and God says, what's more important and what you need to be glorying in is to understand. And knowing there, knowing has the idea, um, it's, it's, it's the idea of perceiving, uh, to be acquainted, to experience. It's, it's like, it's not just the knowledge of the hate, intellectual knowledge. This is the knowledge of uh, knowing uh, you, your wife, knowing your kids. You, you know them, they're in you, you experience, you feel the, the, uh, the benefits of, of, of being with them, that love that you, 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 you can sense it, it's in you. You know them. It's not like, oh, you know the neighbor there. You, yes, you know them by name, whatever, but you don't know them well as you know your family. That's kind of the knowledge. And you see David here in chapter 34, 8, he kind of helps us shed the light. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, David is saying that, thinking back, looking back on what God had done to him, how God had showed his goodness to him. That is knowing and understanding God. Means. So boast, basically, in the fact that you see and perceive who God is and what he does. And who is God? And he tells us who he is there. He says he is a God who exercises steadfast love. Steadfast love refers to loving kindness. He's God's loyal love, faithful love, mercy, and grace. It's all packaged in that word. And in this case, you think of uh, God had made covenant with his people. And these people had failed to keep their covenant, as we see here. They're refusing him. The very person they had sat and made covenant, they've refused him. They've broken their promises. They've broken their covenant side. But God continues to remain faithful to his covenant with his people. And how does he show that? He showed here because even though these people have rejected him, he continues to give them opportunity to repent, 
So he sends his messengers to them to tell them, to plead with them, turn away. They don't deserve it because God will be just to let them go and be destroyed. So this is the idea of God's life. This is who God is because he tells us who practices. That means that's who he is. He does that. It comes from who he is. And he does that all the time. Regardless of circumstances around. So yet, regardless of Judas' failure to keep his side of covenant, God continues to remain faithful. And he does that by showing his grace and mercy to this wicked nation. He warns them, not because they deserve it. They don't deserve it. He provides hope, hope that they don't deserve it. That's who God is. He's a gracious God. Not only he is a steadfast loving God, but he says he is God who exercises justice. Justice is just the idea that God is the one who sets the norm. God is the one who sets the standard of what's right, what's wrong. It's become an issue today in the world where trying and trying to figure out what's wrong, what's right. You know, the easy way is take the Bible. But people refuse that. And so God is right because he's the one. He's the norm. He's the standard of the absolute truth. He knows what's right, and he has disclosed, has revealed to us how we can be able to learn, to know what's right and wrong. He is the righteous God. I mean, he is a just God. But he also said he is the one, God is the one who exercises righteousness. Righteousness refers to conforming to standard, excuse me, I gotta clarify some things that kind of got mixed up. Justice basically refers to idea that God vindicates the innocent and punishes the guilt. And I think if you look in uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it tells you clear that God will not let the guilty go unpunished because He's a just God. All the people. Who you have in your mind, you know that they got away because of money, because of influence, whatever it is. And you feel like, how could God let that guy go away with that? Well, the court might have let him go away like that. Or people may have let him go away like that, but not God. That man will pay his dues because God is just. And he's not just a just God. He's, he's a, if he's a just God, he's a judge. And the, uh, Malachi says this. He's not just a judge who sits like in the court where you know, they, they have to rely on the witnesses. Bring that guy, bring that guy, bring that guy. Uh, what do you say? And, and based on that, no, God is the judge and the witness because he sees everything. So God is just. And he will vindicate the right and he will punish the guilt. No matter how clever they can be on this world. 
And also we see that God is righteous. He exercises righteousness. That's where now we talk about him setting the standards, the norm. How to tell what's truth, what's, what's right. And now you see the connection here that because God is right, he set the standards of norm, of the standard of what's right or wrong. He is perfect God to be able to be a judge because now he's the God who can exercise his justice fairly, perfectly. Because God is righteous, he's able to execute just perfectly. And one other thing, because if you think about it, we people, so many times, we want to be the ones giving justice. But our human justice is so different from God's justice. In the sense that God's justice, as you can see in this text, it tells us God's justice includes his grace. And so that's why from our perspective, we look at some things that God does and we wonder, where was God? Where's God's justice? It's there. But it's not going to be according to human justice because God's justice is includes, it includes grace. And we need that. Because each one of you sitting here, if it wasn't his grace and his justice, we wouldn't be here worshiping him. So God's justice is a perfect justice. So God who is righteous, he's able to execute justice perfectly. And unlike man's justice, his, um, his justice includes, involves loving kindness, grace, mercy. And here's the other encouraging thing you look at this text. It says there, the last part of the verse is, um, he says there that, that he understands, knows, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness where? In the earth. Not in a spiritual realm somewhere there. So you feel like you're excluded. God is at work in you right here on earth, physical earth where we are right now. And we, especially those who are believers, experience, benefit from these characters that he tells us here. We benefit from his grace. We benefit from his righteousness. We benefit from his justice. And we see, we know that. And he practices that all the time. And he practices that here where we are. That's why we can sing about it. We're just not singing songs here because they're in the... No, we sing because this is what moves us to do that. And all believers who experience God's steadfast love, justice, and righteousness understand fully why it is a glorious thing to boast to glory in such a great God. And they can join with David in chapter, Psalms chapter 34, verses 1, 2. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. 
because they understand and they know God's steadfast love, God's justice, and God's righteousness. Human wisdom, strength, human riches, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We can have all those things, but they don't matter. Understanding, knowing who God is and what he does is what matters. It's what has to drive our life. And that is what must preoccupy your life. And be able to be like Paul when he says, but far be it, in Colossians chapter 6 verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I, I, I don't want to boast about anything but Christ. That's his point. Things that the world looks at it and says it's foolish. Don't listen what they're saying. And they don't just say it's foolish, but they say, you know, kill these people. You know, they, they, they persecute that, those people. It's foolish to the world. But it is the very wisdom for those who are godly. This is the boss of the righteous. It's very, very, very contrary to the boss of the worldly. We are Christians. We are believers. We have trusted in God. God has saved us. And we walk up and we pray. We come here, not just to come here to just hang out. We come here knowing that we, each one of us, God is at work. We get encouraged to see each other, to come in and see him because God is at work in our lives here on earth where we are, where we're sitting now. And we know and understand. And if you are not a believer, and if you're not a God follower, all these things are strange to you. And you will not understand this. But thanks be to God who is so gracious. And he is showing his grace even right now. That if you don't know him, you can know him and be part of this. And be able not to be surprised or feel weird to see what's going on here, but to be joyful with it, to jump along. He gives that grace every day, even now. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness. You are a good God. And Lord, we pray that you will continue to help us to not be misguided, to not be misled by the things of the world. But our hearts will be always driven by the things that are of you, God. And so we pray that you will help us to glory every day, every time in you, God. Because, as you've said in your word, these are the things that matter. And these are the things that 
you delight. May that be the motivating factor for us to live. To you be the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.